The book of 1 Samuel has 21 chapters in it. And beginning in chapter 16, uh, based upon the number of chapters, we're right at the halfway mark of the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is followed by 2 Samuel. And you might look at 1 Samuel as being the book that's going to describe the first king of Israel, which would be the people's choice, the people's king. 2 Samuel is going to be about the book of God's choice and Israel's second king. Israel's second king is going to be introduced to us here midway in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll see, Lord willing, if he will bless us in this study, that David's going to be a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous ways. We will see many examples of human nature that we should be able to relate to quite easily. We will see the blessings of God's providence. We will see what happens when men make choices apart from the will of God. We will not see any perfect individuals, including David. David was not perfect. David was a sinner, just like you and I, and David made his mistakes. But overall, David is an outstanding character that we find recorded in scriptures. The word David, or the name David, appears 1,139 times in the Bible. That's more than the name of Jesus. Now, of course, the name Jesus only occurs in the New Testament, where David's name appears in both the majority in the Old, but over 50 times in the New Testament, David's name appears. The very fact he's mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament should let us know how important a person David was in Israel's history. There are certain things said about David that's not said about anybody else. We'll find later here, I think in chapter 13, uh, where, oh, excuse me, uh, uh, later on anyway, you're going to find where David is referred to as a man out after God's own heart. He's the only one in the Bible that's said in that way. We'll find where David is referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was a very gifted man. Uh, David had many, many talents. God blessed him to be somewhat unique with all the abilities and everything that he gave him. David's name means beloved. That's probably the first thing we'll notice about being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we know two examples in the New Testament where heaven opened up when Jesus was baptized, for example, in the last part of Matthew 3. We find the Spirit of God descending, descending upon uh, John the Baptist as he baptized Jesus, and a voice rang out from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. On the mountain of transfiguration, when Jesus took with him uh, Peter, James, and John, we find where Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here and want to build three tabernacles. And when he said that, we find where God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. So the very name David, which means beloved, is a picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first 15 chapters of 1 Samuel set up beginning what's contained in chapter 16. So we will be referring to a few things in those first 15 chapters as we look into the 16th chapter. Now let's look at chapter 16, the opening verse. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
for I have provided me a king among his sons. Now, if you go back into this 15th chapter leading into chapter 16, you'll find where the Bible says that God repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Of course, the history of that is contained in those first 15 chapters. We find where Israel wanted to be like other nations. Now, here's one glimpse of our human nature. It's just natural that we like to be like other people. We look out among us, see other people doing certain things, and we want to do the same things. Um, that's not always a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. We need to be looking up and not looking out. They saw other nations had earthly kings. Israel didn't have an earthly king. So they thought we'd be better off to have an earthly king. It's amazing how people can think that they have more wisdom than God. It's just amazing. Uh, the things you hear people say, that if they were correct, it would mean that they know more than God. They have more understanding than God. They have more knowledge than God. And they have more wisdom than God. So Israel looked out, saw other nations had a king. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted to have a king to go in and out before them. Now this grieved Samuel. Now Samuel's one of the great men in Israel's history. Samuel was both a prophet and a judge. And he was a miraculous child. You know, he was born of Hannah. Uh, the Lord miraculously enabled Hannah to conceive and bring forth a son, and it was Samuel. Samuel has grown, and the Lord has used him in a very great way. And this greatly grieved Samuel. And it grieves every servant of God, every minister of the gospel in the New Testament day, for example, is going to grieve when he sees things that God's people do or hear things that God's people say that they know is not in accordance to the will of God. And Samuel knew this was not a good thing. But the Lord told Samuel, he says, let the people have what they desire. He says, they've not rejected you. They have rejected me. Israel didn't need an earthly king. They had God himself, who's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Certainly, as you look back in Israel's history, see how God had provided for Israel in every way that they needed being provided for. But that was Israel's desire, and Samuel even told them what kind of king they would have and what he would do, and they turned a deaf ear to all of his instructions. Uh, they simply rejected the counsel of Samuel. In chapter 13, you're going to find where Saul offers a sacrifice which as king he was not allowed to do. Only the priests were allowed to do that. When Samuel comes up and asks Saul why he did it, he said, well, you were late getting here. And Samuel was delayed somewhat, but that was no justification for Saul to uh, make an offering that was forbidden by God's law. But because he did that, you're going to find where Samuel tells him that the Lord is going to take the kingdom away from him and give it to a man who's a man after his own heart, whom God would seek for to replace him to be a captain over all the Israelites. He didn't tell him who he was, what his name was at that time. In chapter 15, the previous chapter, you find where Saul goes out to do battle against the Amalekites. And God gave him clear instructions that he was to destroy every single individual among the Amalekites and all their animals. And Saul didn't do that. Saul spared the king, King Agag. He spared him. And he spared the very best of some of the oxen and, and the, um, you know, the oxen and the, and the sheep. 
And so when Samuel came again to the scene, we find where Saul said, I've done what the Lord commanded me. Now it's interesting to me also to see here, human nature, how some people believe that partial obedience is satisfactory with the Lord. But partial obedience is not satisfactory with the Lord. If a father tells his son to mow the grass and he comes home and the front yard's mowed, he says, oh, that looks great. But he walks around, sees the backyard's not mowed, and the son says, well, I've done what you told me. Uh, that is not going to be satisfactory with a normal father. Partial obedience, even in that sense, is not equal to complete obedience. And we find that Saul clearly disobeyed God's clear commandments in chapter 13 and chapter 15. This time we find where Samuel says to twice, he says to Saul, as thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord hath rejected you, and he's going to replace you. Now, he's going to re he rejected him as the king of Israel. He's going to be replaced as the king. Now, the Bible says that it repented God that he had made Saul king. That word repent, as it relates to God, means to breathe strongly. It means to, to sigh. It's, it's an expression of grief. You find it, first of all, in Genesis 6, 6. After Adam transgressed God's law and evil began to overspread the world in great wickedness, the Bible says it repented God that he made man upon the earth, and therefore he purposed to destroy the earth by the flood. Again, that word repent as it is used with God is not the same as it is with man. With man it means to make a turn, to make a change, to go in the opposite direction. But in this same chapter, chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul that God, he refers to him as the strength of Israel, spelled with a capital S, is not a man that he should lie or repent. He's not like man when it comes to repentance. But in the last verse of chapter 15, it says that God repented that he had made Saul. Now, Saul mourns. That's understandable. Saul had been a leader among the Israelites. He was a leader among the Israelites. He wasn't a king, but he was a prophet and a judge. And he mourned because of this. Uh, there were things about Saul in his early days that were commendable and admirable. But now Saul has rejected the word of the Lord and now God has rejected him as being king, and therefore God is going to replace him. So into chapter 16, God says to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from being king? In other words, you've seen my actions, Samuel. This is my decision. I've rejected him as being king. The time for mourning for him is over with. He said, I want you to go to see Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now he's called Jesse the Bethlehemite because he lived in Bethlehem. Now a little history of Bethlehem, the city of David, by the way. Bethlehem's called the city of David. First time Bethlehem comes to our attention, we find where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, is about to give birth to a son. His name is Benjamin. In giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel passes away. She died in childbearing when she brought uh, Benjamin into this world. They were right near Bethlehem when this happened. So for a long time, when you thought of Bethlehem, you thought of a place of death. But that would change. Now in the book of Ruth, you'll find where Boaz and Ruth get married. And of course, one of the most commendable characters in all the Bible is Ruth. Boaz and Ruth get married. And the first time David's name, by the way, is mentioned, 
Prior to this, this is the second time. The very first time is in the last verse of the book of Ruth, chapter 4. There's a little short genealogy given in that last chapter of the book of Ruth. And you'll find where Boaz and Ruth begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So Boaz and Ruth were the great-grandparents of David. I find that to be quite interesting. Two outstanding individuals that's in the Bible here, the book of Ruth, were the great-grandparents of David. It's also interesting to me that it says, and Jesse begot David, he also begot seven other sons. And David's the youngest. David is number eight of the sons of Jesse. The other seven sons aren't mentioned here in Ruth chapter 4, only David. So he says, I want you to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now we come to the second chapter of Luke, and we find in verse 4 where Joseph comes to Bethlehem to pay uh, as a tax has gone out from uh, Augustus Caesar. And so he comes to Bethlehem, uh, which is the city of David, we're told. And then in verse 11, the angels come, and they bring this message. It says, Fear not, for it is born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The city of David was Bethlehem. Now, for many centuries, Bethlehem was a city of death. But now it's, called the, it's going to be called the city of life. Why? Because he who is life is born there. The Lord Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth, but spent a great deal of his time, of course, in Jerusalem and Galilee. But he's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is referred to as the city of David. So Samuel now obeys the Lord. He goes to, to, to the household or to Bethlehem, and he calls for a sacrifice. And Jesse and his family are invited to the sacrifice. Now, we're going to find in the selection of David. By the way, let me just say this. If God had issued a command to Samuel for Israel to have an election, to elect a king to replace Saul, I can assure you they would never have elected David. <laughs> they never would have elected David. In fact, we see human nature in the selection of David. We find when Samuel calls Jesse and them to the sacrifice for the purpose of God is going to reveal unto Samuel who's going to replace Saul, we find Jesse doesn't even bring David to it. He leaves David, who is number eight, the youngest, watching sheep. Well, let's look at David's occupation right here just for a moment. What's David's occupation? It's a shepherd. What was the occupation of Moses at the age of 80 when God called him? It was that of a shepherd, wasn't it? What about Abel? Abel was a man who kept, kept a flock. He kept, kept sheep. And so we find uh, David here being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the standpoint, he's a shepherd watching over sheep. Now that was a very responsible job that he had. But apparently his father didn't even consider the possibility that David could be selected to replace Saul as king over Israel. Now the Lord Jesus Christ, as we mentioned numerous times in the past, in John chapter 10 is referred to as the good shepherd. And John chapter 10 is a chapter where it emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ laid down his life for the sheep. A dedicated shepherd, a shepherd of integrity, 
a shepherd who took his job seriously would be willing to give his life for the sheep that he took care of. And the Lord makes a sharp distinction in John chapter 10 between a shepherd and a hireling. He says, a hireling is somebody when the wolf comes, you know, and the bear and the lion, then he flees. Why? Because he's a hireling. But a true shepherd is not a hireling. And we see what a great shepherd was when later on we'll find out David, uh, of course, uh, when a lion and a bear came to rob one of David's flocks, David rescued the lamb and slew the bear and he slew the lion. So David is a picture of Christ in that regard. Then in Hebrews 13 and 20, the writer says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, Jesus Christ, not only the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, he's the great shepherd in his resurrection. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's referred to as the chief shepherd upon his return. David is a shepherd. And when God, if you, if you study this, if, when God called different individuals, I never find where God called somebody when they were doing nothing. God doesn't call idle people. God doesn't call lazy people. When God calls somebody to do something, you'll find they were already doing something. Again, Moses. What was Moses doing when God called him? He's keeping sheep. What about Gideon? What's Gideon doing? Gideon was threshing wheat by the wine press. On an ordinary day, he was doing what he always did. He's there threshing wheat under the wine press. He's busy doing something when God calls him. What's David doing? David is... What? Keeping sheep, right? So God calls people that are busy people. What about Amos? You hardly ever hear about Amos. Let's get him into the picture. What was Amos doing? He was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. <laughs> uh, he was a busy man, industrious man, uh, not idle. God never called anybody that was idle. Everybody you study in the Bible, when God called them to do something, they were in the process of doing something when he called them to do something. And of course, what he called them to do was greater than what they were doing. Just like Peter and Andrew and James and John. What were they doing when God called them as disciples and apostles? Why? What were they doing? They were fishing. They were in a trade of fishing. <clears throat> James and John were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. They worked together for Zebedee, the father of James and John. They were doing something. They were busy. They were working. They were hard workers. That's who God calls. He doesn't call lazy people. He doesn't call people who are doing nothing. He calls people who are doing something and gives them something to do that's greater than something they were doing before he called them. Now, we find that David and Jesse meet. And we find where Jesse does what, again, a lesson of human nature. Who would you have brought out? Since the firstborn in the culture of that day received additional benefits over the other brothers, it'd only be natural to bring the oldest out, right? So that's what Jesse does. He brings the oldest son out for Samuel. Well, the Lord's going to give Samuel some instructions. It's very important. He tells Samuel, he says, look not on his statue. Look not on his outward appearance. For the Lord looketh upon the heart. Now that's the difference in how man looks at things and that God looks at things. So what's Jesse doing? He's looking on the outward man. Now what did Israel do when they selected Saul? Go back and read about his physical attributes and description in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 
in the opening verses there, you find where Saul, we're told, was a goodly person, and there was nobody among the Israelites any more goodlier than he. Now, see, every time I've used that word goodly, you, you all thought I was just making it up. Well, I wasn't making it up. It's right there, plain English, black and white, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's a biblical word. But it says he was head and shoulders above all others. Now, this was unusual for a, a Jewish man, a Hebrew, to be a tall person. But Saul of Kish was very tall. In fact, he was so tall in a crowd of people out here, you could easily identify him. You could easily pick him out because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. And that was very impressive to the natural eye. Very impressive when it comes to human nature. Samuel had already been through this. So the Lord tells Samuel, look not on the outward man, look not upon his statue. Because that's not how God looks at it. God looks on the inside. God looks on the heart. You know, in Jeremiah 17, 9, quote that oftentimes to, as a proof text of man's depravity, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then it says, who can know it? You know what the next verse says? It says, I, the Lord, search the hearts. I, the Lord, look upon the heart and try the reins and render to every man those things which he has done. See, God's a perfect judge. God has never misjudged your motive. Sometimes people misjudge another person's motive. They think they know what the motive was when they're not right. But God has never made a mistake in that. God has never misjudged an individual because God sees the heart. He sees the intent, just like Hebrews 4.12 tells us. For the word of God, that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ as the living word. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharpening a two-edged sword. Piercing even to the sunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Look at the, the, one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit found in Romans 8, 26 and 27. It says, For the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for us according to the will of God. Now, David's a man after God's own heart, but God was able to see David's heart and the heart of all others. Now, something else pretty interesting about, about Saul and his eight sons. If you go to 1 Chronicles, chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 2, in the 13th verse, you'll find where all of his sons are named except number seven. And son number seven is not even mentioned. It says David's number seven. And that's not a contradiction. Uh, most people think that somewhere along the line, son number seven died and he dropped out of the genealogy. It's very clear and plain here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that Jesse had eight sons. And David is number eight. Now, what about the number eight? In the scriptures, the number eight is the number of new beginnings. Israel's about to have a new beginning. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. God's going to bring this in gradually over time. Eight's the number of new beginnings. There's going to be a new beginning to Israel's history under the leadership of David. David's going to be uh, God's choice. David is, is God's choice. 
David's going to be the king over Israel, following the footsteps of Saul. And it's going to take a new beginning under David to overcome the disastrous reign of Saul for the years that he reigned as the people's choice. So Jesse brings out son number, son number one, son number two. He works his way down through son number seven. Samuel is doing what God told him to do. He's not looking on the outward appearance, and God has not revealed him yet who the son is. So David asked Samuel the question. Excuse me, Samuel asked Saul, excuse me, Jesse the question. Is there not another? He said, well, yes, the youngest. Like the fact, because he's the youngest, uh, I, I didn't even consider him. He's a keeper of the sheep. And we find where Samuel says, well, go and fetch him. And so they went and sent for him and got him and brought him. And as soon as they did, we find where the Lord revealed unto him that the eighth son, the youngest, the keeper of the sheep, David, was going to be the one whom God had sought after and was going to replace Saul as the king of Israel. Now, we looked at the outward appearance of Saul. What about David? We're told here, after this takes place, that David was ruddy. That means he had a reddish complexion. It says he was of a fair countenance, which literally means he was a fine-looking young person. David was, I don't know what David's age was, but he was a teenager at this point. He's a very young man. But he's already got great admirable qualities about him. Now, he's a very fine-looking young man. He was ruddy, a fair countenance. In fact, you'll find in chapter 17, when he goes out to fight Goliath, that's the very thing Goliath said about him. Goliath took note of that. So it's important for us to take note of it if God put it in his word for us to read. Now, it's a contrast to Saul. So David now is selected. The Lord reveals unto Samuel which one he is. So we saw the city of David, the occupation of David, and we're looking at the selection of David. Now, while we're on the selection of David, this, this to me illustrates a great principle found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, Paul says, For you've seen your calling, brethren, how not, might, not many mighty men, not many uh, men of the flesh, many mighty men or many wise men are called. Not many. He didn't say not any, but not many. Because that's how God, that's how man would call them. He would call the mighty. He would call what he would consider to be the wise people. But he says that's not the way God does it. For God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. The word confound means to confuse. So how does God confuse the wise of this world? By choosing the foolish. That is, the foolish in the sight of men. How does he confound or confuse the mighty of this world? By choosing the weak. That is, those who are weak in the sight of men. That's how he does it. And he goes on to say, why does he do these things? You read the end of chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says he did this, that no man should glory except in the Lord. That's why you glory in the Lord. When God does something, it becomes apparent God is the author of it. He's the doer of it. Who's going to get the praise? The Lord's going to get the praise. The Lord's going to get the honor. The Lord's going to get the glory. So if it had been left up to Jesse, his oldest son would replace Saul. If not him, surely number two or three or four or five or six or seven. But no, it's number eight. It's going to be the youngest. It's going to be the keeper of the sheep. Now, the Bible tells us 
in chapter 16 that Samuel anointed David with oil. Now, only a priest, a prophet, or a king was ever anointed with oil. They're the only three. And they couldn't anoint themselves. They had to be anointed, however, somebody that was authorized to do the anointing. In this case, it's Samuel. He's authorized of God to do the anointing. Now, he anointed Saul with oil as well. But now he anoints David with oil. That sets him apart. That signifies his official title, his official role, what God has in store for him. He is now being anointed. Now, so far, what have we seen in the case of David that reminds us of Christ? We learned about his name, right? His occupation. The very fact he was overlooked. The Lord Jesus Christ for 33 and a half years in this world was despised and rejected of me and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was not recognized as being the Messiah, not recognized as being the Christ. Surely uh, the son of Joseph and Mary could not possibly be God's son. See, that was a stumbling block. The very family that God brought his son in this world by Mary and Joseph was a stumbling block to the Jewish people. They just couldn't imagine this. They just couldn't imagine God sent his beloved son this world and been born into a poor family. They couldn't imagine that Jesus being born in Bethlehem and raised up in Nazareth, which was a city that was despised and looked down upon. They couldn't imagine that, you see. That was contrary to human reasoning, contrary to human thinking. But I read in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where the Lord through the prophet said, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. That's the Old Testament uh, counter, you might say, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 over here. God's ways simply are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God doesn't think like man thinks. So we see David being a type of Christ in that regard. We see David being a type of Christ, the fact that he's a shepherd watching over sheep. That's why you have the analogy all the way through the Bible, especially the New Testament, of New Testament ministers being as shepherds over sheep. Sheep, um, you know, are a picture of the Lord's family. God uses sheep all the time throughout the Bible to teach us lessons about his family. When the Lord comes back again, as recorded in Matthew chapter 25, what's he going to do? He's going to come back like a shepherd which divided his sheep from the goats. He's going to put his sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. He's going to say to the sheep on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Acts 20 verse 28, Paul tells the elders of Ephesus, he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, whom the Holy Ghost has made you the overseers of. The word overseer literally means superintendent. A superintendent doesn't own the company. He's an officer of the company. He has responsibility. He's over things, but he's not the owner. And under shepherds don't own the sheep. But God's put them in charge of taking care of the sheep. Also, we should be all familiar with Psalms 23. And all through David's life, you're going to find certain parts of Psalms 23 that ought to come to our attention. 
In Psalms 23, David says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies, thou anointest my head with oil. Here David's head is literally anointed with oil by Samuel and set apart as the new king. It's going to be the new king over Israel. Now it hadn't yet been made manifest, but the official act has taken place. So David now is anointed. You know what the word Christ means? Christ means anointed. The Lord Jesus Christ was the anointed of God. But his anointment was a little different. I already told you that prophets, priests, and kings were the only ones who were ever, who ever anointed, and they had to be anointed with somebody with authority to do so. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't just a prophet or just a, a priest or a king. He was prophet, priest, and king. He's the only one in history to occupy all three of these offices. He's, he's all of it. He's a prophet of prophets. He's a priest of priests. He's the king of kings. So who anointed him? God did, his father. Look in Hebrews 1.8. It says, God loveth righteousness and hateth iniquity. And thou hast anointed him with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Not little oil, but the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That word fellow in the scripture means somebody, uh, you know, that's like each other. You know, fellows, you got fellowship. When you think of fellowship, just think of a ship with fellows in the ship. And they're all in the ship for the same reason. And they want to get from point A to point B. So they all take their oars and they row together in the same direction. <laughs> Can you imagine having eight or ten uh, men on this side of the ship and eight or ten men on this side of the ship and these on this side are rowing this way and there's this side are rowing this way. Where would you get? You'd get nowhere, right? And I've seen people, God's people, and sometimes in, even in the church, you know, uh, trying to row in different directions. So where do you go? You go nowhere. If you just got people rowing on one side, you know what you get? It starts going in circles. Just starts going in circles. So if you want to get from point A to point B, you've got to have people on both sides rowing in the same direction and in sync as much as humanly possible. Synchronize. <laughs> Togetherness. Harmony. Unity. So God anointed him above his fellows. Above his fellows. He was above Moses. He's above Joshua. Above David. David's a picture of Christ, but he's not Christ. Joseph was a picture of Christ. We saw as we studied his life. But he's not Christ. Christ is above Joseph. He's above his fellows, you see. Now, the last thing we're told about David, after he's anointed, is that the Spirit of God came upon David. And in the very next verse, it says that the Spirit of God departed from Saul. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? At the very same time that the Spirit of God comes on David, the Spirit that God had put upon Saul, he takes away it departs from Saul. Then the Bible says an evil spirit came upon Saul. Now when you study Saul's life, if you're going to do a profile of Saul, you'd find him a man that was given to temper. You'd see him be a man who's given to suspicion. And certainly he was a man given to envy and jealousy. That was his downfall. He became very envious of David, very jealous. And we'll see that Lord willing in the future. That led to his downfall. 
the Lord eventually just left Saul to himself altogether, totally, and left him in darkness. The Spirit of God came upon David, and the Spirit of God departed from Saul. That's a picture of discipline. That's a picture of God withdrawing himself. One of the saddest things I've ever seen in life, and I've seen it many times, is when God withdraws his fellowship from one of his children. You can't lose your relationship with God, but you sure can lose your fellowship with him. And God will hide his face at times when his children do what Saul did. What did Saul do? He rejected the word of the Lord, and therefore God rejected him as being king. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? When he says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. We're told in the book of James, draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to thee. Well, the opposite of that is true, isn't it? If that's true, the opposite of that is true. Draw nigh to me, the Lord says, and I'll draw nigh to you. Now, the Spirit of God came upon David, but the Spirit of God departed from Saul. An evil spirit came upon him, and he wasn't happy. He was unhappy. So what did his servant say? His servant said, you know, what you need is somebody who is skilled in playing, you know, an instrument and coming to play that instrument for you. And then one of the servants said, I know a man just like that. It's kind of interesting to me how sometimes a servant has had the key or the answer to something. You remember, who was it that told Naaman, we read about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 6, and Naaman's a man who's got leprosy, and a suggestion is made to him, there's a man of God over here in the camp of Israel that could do him some good. You know who made that suggestion? It was a little maid that was in captivity, a little Jewish maid. And then once he got over there, and Elijah told him exactly what he needed to do, Elisha, and because of his pride, he didn't want to do it. He told him to go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. And when you do that, you'll come forth clean. He didn't want to do it. And a suggestion was made unto him that if he'd have told him to do some great thing, he'd have done that. You know who made the suggestion? His servants made the suggestion. His servants, a maid, a servant right here, says, I know a man like that. And I want you to know how he's described. Says he was a cunning man in playing. He was a valiant man, a man of war, a man prudent in matters, a comely individual. And then the last thing, number six, six things that said about David. I just gave you five. Number six tells us, and the Lord was with him. That's the key to success. The Lord was with him. Samuel liked it. Saul liked the suggestion, so he he sent some messages to Jesse, request, request and requiring it. Jesse sent his son David over there. Now take a look at these things said about David and see right here what a gifted man he was. He was cunning and playing. He was able to play with great expertise upon the harp. He was a valiant man, brave man. He was prudent in matters. He was a man of war. This is already said about him when he's still a very young man. He hadn't even fought Goliath yet. 
and all this is being said about it. But the most important thing of all was the number six, the last thing, for the Lord was with him. What was the key to Joseph's success? Do you remember that? Chapter 39, book of Genesis, what was the key to the success of Joseph? It said repeatedly over there, for the Lord was with him. Look in Joshua chapter 6, verse 7. It says, and the Lord was with Joshua. And God began to magnify him in the sight of the people. 1 Samuel chapter 3. It says, and the Lord was with Samuel. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. Wow, I wonder how many of my words fall to the ground. I wonder how many words that I try to speak, how many words I try to preach to the Lord's people. I wonder how many sink in, how many just fall to the ground. <laughs> well, God didn't let any of the words of Samuel fall to the ground. When Samuel spoke, those words meant something. Because God did not let any of those words fall to the ground. The key to his success was the Lord with him. The key to your success is the Lord is with you. Don't ever forget that. Maybe the most important thing I've said here tonight. The key to biblical success, the key to success in life is that the Lord is with you. That does not guarantee fame. It doesn't guarantee fortune. doesn't guarantee wealth. All those kind of things that men thrive upon. But it will guarantee success. Whatever success I may have had in life, it's because the Lord has been with me. The Lord has been with me. Without question, <laughs> the Lord has been with me. And I hope and pray I can live in such a manner way that the Lord will always be with me. And we close tonight with something said about the Lord Jesus Christ by Peter to Cornelius in Acts 10, 38. Now, Peter's come to where Cornelius is at. Cornelius is sent for him. He's come there, preached the gospel to him. Here's what he said in verse 38. And it says, For the spirit and power of God, of the Holy Ghost, was upon his son Jesus. And Jesus went about doing good and delivering them that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, if it's important for us to know that God was with his son Jesus Christ, it ought to be really important for us to recognize the importance of God being with us. With me as an individual. With my family. With our church here collectively. If the Lord is not with us, we're helpless. If the Lord is not with us, we have no strength. If the Lord is not with us, we have no guidance and no direction. But with the Lord being with us, we can be directed and guided and built up the most holy faith and strengthened and comforted and, and receive consolation and encouragement to face the trials of life and the challenges of another day. When David comes to Saul, after Saul sends for him, when he comes there, the Bible says that Saul loved David. And he became his armor bearer. That's going to change. That is going to change. It's not going to take long. Saul became David's number one enemy. But David never treated Saul as an enemy. And chapter 16 ends with David playing upon the harp. And the evil spirit that's upon Saul began to go away 
and leave him. Lord willing, in our next time, two weeks from now, we'll look in chapter 17 of 1 